Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the pod. Talking about Hail and Farewell Chapter... What are we up to? 10.2. We're going to finish off Chapter 10 right here, right now. But first, uh, Techrific says, A mass only rememberable for a squealing harmonium. And yet, more feels compelled to recount the tedious minutiae of that unremarkable mass. Didn't he have an editor? He famously critiqued poor Edward, but he could have used some of that acumen on himself and his own writing. Yeah. (laughs) I just don't feel... I feel like he's critiquing them, acting like he's, he's like, you know... He's trying to sort of take credit for these other people's work. Like, oh, I'm the one who gave him the critiques. And they didn't want to hear it, but, you know, my words were so important. And I kind of feel like, you know, maybe they didn't want to hear it because your feedback sucked because you suck. <laughs> However, Swim System of she says, Aha, I found this passage descriptive and interesting. I liked the minutiae he provided. Why am I not surprised? Different strokes, etc. <laughs> Um, oh, look, I don't know. I've, I've said this a million times. You guys have heard me say it, but as soon as it gets churchy, I just, uh, it just doesn't interest in me. <laughs> like I've, I feel like I've just spent so many hours of my life in church, out of church, talking about this religion, that religion. So many hours I'm just subjected to it. And I decided so many hours ago that it's just not for me. And yet, here I am, you know, (laughs) like I cannot, I cannot get away from it. Even people who are like anti-religion, you know, I don't like, you know, that's not even my crowd. You'd think it would be, but it's like they go on about it more than anyone else. You just can't escape it. Um, anyway, what am I, what am I saying? It doesn't matter. It's all good. My whole point is I just didn't get much out of this chapter. So far, we're still we're still going. Um, and I hope not too much more of the book is about, uh, you know, religion versus other religion. Uh, I have a bad feeling, though, that I'm going to be disappointed. Let us keep reading. After long ringing, the maid servant opened the door and told me that Lady Gregory had gone to church with her niece. Mr. Yeats was composing. Would I take a seat in the drawing room and wait till he was finished? He must have heard the wheels of the car coming around the gravel sweep, for he was in the room before the servant left, enthusiastic though a little weary. He had written five lines and a half, and a pause between one's rhymes is an excellent thing, he said. One could not but admire him, for even in clearly, even in early morning, he was convinced of the importance of literature in our national life. He is nearly as tall as a Dublin policeman, and preaching literature he stood on the hearthrug, his feet set close together, lifting his arms above his head, the very moment that Raphael gives to Paul when preaching to Athens. He said what he wanted to, do was to gather up a great mass of speech. It did not seem to me clear why he would be at pains to gather up a great mass of speech to write so exiguous a thing as the shadowy waters, but we live in our desires rather than in our achievements, and Yeats talked on, 
telling me that he was experimenting and did not know whether his play would come out in rhyme or in blank verse. He was experimenting. He could write blank verse almost as easily as prose and therefore feared it. Some obstacle, some down was necessary. It seemed a pity to interrupt him, but I was interested to hear if he were going to accept my end and allow the lady to drift southward, drinking yellow ale with the sailors, while the hero sought salvation and alone in the north. He flowed out into a torrent of argument and explanation, very ingenious but impossible to follow. Phrase after phrase rose and turned and went out like a wreath of smoke, and when the last was spoken and the idea it had borne had vanished, I asked him if he knew the legend of Diomud and Grania. He began to tell me it in it to me in its many variants, surprising me with unexpected dramatic situations, at first sight contradictory and incoherent, but on closer scrutiny revealing a psychology in germ which it would interest me to unfold. A wonderful hour of literature that was, flowering into a resolution to write an heroic play together. As we sat looking at each other in silence, Lady Gregory returned from church. She came into the room quite quickly, with a welcoming smile on her face, and I set her down here as I see her, a middle-aged woman, agreeable to look upon perhaps for her broad, handsome intellectual brow and framed in grey hair. The brown, wide-open eyes are often lifted in looks of appeal and inquiry and a natural wish to sympathise softens her voice till it whines. It modulated, however, very presently as she yielded her attention to Ye too, insisted on telling her how, too, being so different as myself and Wellen, had suddenly become united in a conspiracy to deceive Edward Wellen because he could not believe in the efficacy of a mass performed by an anti-Parnellite and I, because Yeats hesitated for a sufficient reason, deciding suddenly that I had objected to hear Mass in Gort because there was no one in the church who had read Villiers de Ilicil Adam except myself. And he seemed so much amused that the thought suddenly crossed my mind that perhaps the Cocassariers of Cornort were more natural to him than the heroic moods which he believed himself called upon to interpret. His literature is one thing, and his conversation is another, divided irreparably. Is this right? Lady Gregory chatted on, telling stories faintly farcical, amusing to those who knew the neighbourhood, but rather wearisome for one who didn't, and I was waiting for an opportunity to tell her that a heroic drama was going to be written on the subject of Diamond and Grania. When my lips broke the news, a cloud gathered in her eyes and she admitted that she thought it would be hardly wise for Yeats to undertake any further work at present, and later in the afternoon she took me into her confidence, telling me that Yeats came to cool every summer because it was necessary to get him away from the distractions of London, not so much from social as from intellectual distractions that Arthur Simmons had inaugurated. The Savoy rose up in my mind with its translations from Villiers, Diazel, Adam Verlet and Master Link, and I agreed with her that alien influences were a great danger to the artist. All Yeats' early poems, she broke in, were written in Sligo, and among them were twenty beautiful lyrics in Ireland's one great poem, The Wanderings of Ushin. All these had come straight out of the landscape and the people he had known from boyhood. For seven years we have been waiting for a new book from him, ever since the Countess of Kathleen, 
We have been reading the publisher's autumn announcement of The Wind Among the Reeds. The volume was finished here last year. It would never have been finished if I had not asked him to cool. And though we live in an ungrateful world, I think somebody will throw a kind word after me some day, if nothing else, for The Wind Among the Reeds. I looked round, thinking that perhaps life at cool was arranged primarily to give him an impo- in, an opportunity of writing poems. As if she had read my thoughts, Lady Gregory led me into the back drawing room and showed me the table at which he wrote. And I admired the clean pens, the fresh ink, and the spotless blotter. These were her special care every morning. I foresaw the straight sofa lying across the window, valued in some future time because the poet had reclined upon it between his rhymes. Ah, me, the creeper that rustles, an accompaniment to his melodies in the pain, will awaken again year after year, but one year it will awaken in vain. My eyes thanked Lady Gregory for her devotion to literature. Instead of writing novels, she had released the poet from the quern of daily journalism, and anxious that she should understand my appreciation of her, I spoke of the thirty-six wild swans that had risen out of the lake, while Yeats and I wandered all through the long evening, seeking a new composition for the shadowy waters. She did not answer me, and I followed her in silence back to the front of the room, and sat listening to her while she sat, while she told me that it was because she wanted poems from him that she looked askance at our project to write a play together on the subject of Diamond and Grania. It was not that the subject was unsuited to his genius, but she thought it should be written by him alone. The best of neither would transpire in collaboration, and she lamented that it were useless to save him from the intellectual temptations of Simmons if he were to be tossed into more subtle ones. She laughed, as is her way when she cozens, and reminded me that we were of different temperaments and had arisen out of different literary traditions. Mayo went to Montmartre, and Sligo turned into Fleet Street. Suspicious in her cleverness, my remark did not altogether please her, and she said something about a man of genius and a man of talent coming together, speaking quickly under her breath, so that her scratch would escape nothing at the time. And we were talking of our responsibilities towards genius when the door opened and Yeats came into the room. He entered somewhat diffidently, I thought, with an invitation to me to go for a walk. Lady Gregory was appeased with the news that he had written five and a half lines that morning and a promise that he would be back at six and would do a little more riding before dinner. As he went away, he told me that he might attain his maximum of nine lines that evening if he succeeded in finishing the broken line, but S must never meet S, for his sake was inadmissible. And while seeking how he might avoid such a terrifying cacophony of we tramped down wet roads and climbed over low walls into scant fields, finding the ruined castle we were in search of at the end of the long boreen and long tall wet grasses, the walls were intact and the stair, and from the top we stood, watching the mist drifting across the grey country, Yeats telling me, telling how the wine had been drugged at Tara, myself thinking how natural it was that Lady Gregory should look upon me as a danger to Yeats's genius. As we descended the slippery stair, an, ar- an argument began in my head whereby our project of collaboration might be defended. Next time I went to cool, I would say to Lady Gregory, you see, Yeats came to me with the shadowy waters because he had entangled the plot art and introduced all his ideas into it and you would admit that the plot had to be disentangled. 
to consolate her completely, I would say that while Yeats was rewriting the shadowy waters, I would spend my time writing an act about the many adventures that befell Diamond and Grania as they fled before Finn. Yeats had told me these adventures in the ruined castle. I had given to them all the attention that I could spare from Lady Gregory, who I was thinking might admit my help in the arrangement of some incidents in the shadowy waters, but would always regard our collaboration in Diamond and Grania with hostility. But for this partiality, it seemed to me I could not blame her so well had she put her case when she said that her fear was that my influence might break up the mould of his mind. The car waited for me at the end of the Boreen, and before starting I tried to persuade Yeats to come to Tilia with me, but he said he could not leave Lady Gregory alone, and before we parted I learned that she read to him every evening. Last summer it was War and Peace, and this summer she was reading Spencer's Fairy Queen, for he was going to publish a selection and must get back to cool for the seventh canto. Goodbye, and springing up on the car, I was driven by Wellen into the mist, thinking Yeats the most fortunate amongst us, he having discovered among all others that one who, by instinctive sympathy, understood the capacity of his mind and could evoke it, and who never wearied of it, whether it came to her in elaborately wrought stanzas or in the form of some simple confession. The mood of last night related as they crossed the sward after breakfast, as the moon is more interested in the earth than in any other thing, there is always some woman more interested in a man's mind than in anything else, and willing to follow its sentence by sentence, a great deal of Yeats's work must come to her in fragments, a line and a half, two lines, and these she faithfully copies on her typewriter, and even those that his ultimate taste has rejected or treasured up, and perhaps will one day appear in a stately verorium edition. Well, she may say that the future will owe her something, and my thoughts moved back to the first time I saw her twenty-five years ago. She was then a young woman, very earnest, who divided her hair in the middle, and wore it smooth on either side of the broad and handsome brow. Her eyes were always full of questions, and her Protestant high school air became her greatly, and estranged me from her. In her drawing room were to be met men of assured reputation in literature and politics, and there was always the best reading of the time upon her tables. There was nothing, however, in her conversation to suggest literary faculty, and it was a surprise to me to hear one day that she had written a pamphlet in defence of Arabi Pasha, an Egyptian rebel. Some years after she edited her husband's memoirs, circumstances had not proved favourable to the development of her gift, and it languished till she met Yeats. He could not have been long at cool before he began to draw her attention to the beauty of literature that arises among the hills and bubbles irresponsibly, and set her going from cabin to cabin, taking down stories, and encouraged her to learn the original language of the country so that they might add to the Irish idiom, which the peasant had already translated in English, making his what? making in this way a language for themselves. Yeats could only acquire the idiom by the help of Lady Gregory, for although he loves the dialect and detests the defaced idiom which we speak in our streets and parlours, he has little aptitude to learn that of the Boreen and the marketplace. She put her aptitude at his service and translated portions of Kathleen Ni Khan into Kiltartan. Kiltartan? is the village in which she collects the dialect, and she worked 
in it into the revised version of the stories from the Secret Rose, published by the Dun Emma Press, and thinking how happy their lives must be at cool, implicated it in literary partnership. My heart went out towards her in sudden sympathy. She has been wise all her life, I said. She knew him to be her need at once, and she never hesitated. Yet she knew me before she knew him. And that is chapter 10. Thank you for listening. Um, oops. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, sorry. See you tomorrow. I am getting distracted by doing the next step of the podcast. Um, I, I took in very little of that, as per usual. I apologize. So... <laughs> Hopefully I can get back up to speed uh, tonight slash tomorrow when I read your comments. Excellent. Have an excellent evening. See ya.